We all have questions about the Bible. At Milwaukee Chi Alpha, we want to take the questions we have about the Old Testament and use them to get us closer to Jesus and what we're calling the XA Learning Hour. And we strongly believe that if God is real, if what we believe is true, our questions will lead us back to Him. So let's start this journey in the XA Learning Hour, questioning the Old Testament. Welcome to QTOT today. Um, excited you guys are here. Really excited for this topic. Um, we are talking about women in the Old Testament. So this is a topic that I love to discuss. I love looking into what the Bible says about it. And I feel very passionately about um, and uh, a bit about my story because I think that's a little bit relevant um, when I grew up, I grew up knowing I wanted to be a missionary, feeling called to the ministry. And then when Jeff and I were engaged and getting ready to get married, all of a sudden I felt very confused because I was called to this. And yet suddenly based on my upbringing and what I was taught and what I thought was in the Bible, I thought that I had to follow Jeff's call and that I was now a supporting role, which didn't line up. It just something didn't feel right and it didn't make sense. And um, because as a single person, I had a calling and as a married person, suddenly I was supporting my husband, even if our callings did line up. And so I took a long time to wrestle with it and ask a lot of questions. And Jeff and I got in a fight about this the day before our wedding. Um, but I am so thankful I am thankful for the people in my life who let me ask my questions and let me not be sure and let me question what I thought and who pointed me to the Bible and to the way that the Bible supports women in ways that I didn't understand. Um, Chuck and Sally Havick, uh, directors at the time in Duluth, Minnesota. Sorry, the thing is not staying on my cup and I don't know why. <laughs> anyway, um, Chuck and Sally Havick, who were our directors in Duluth for a year with Chi Alpha, came alongside us and showed us not only that men and women doing this together is biblical, that my calling is supported by the Bible, but also that it is possible to do this together. And so we are going to look into what the Old Testament says about women, how it handles women, how it treats women. We are specifically looking at the Old Testament. The New Testament has a lot to say. We can talk about that. I also believe the New Testament in always builds off of the Old Testament. So um, by all means, let's talk about that. But it will be a question. Or it will be a discussion for another time because talking about the Old Testament is going to just take up all of our time. And this is our foundation. So we are going to start at the very beginning in Genesis. But before that, I want to talk about origin stories. We've talked about these a little bit. At some point, we talked about them with a flood, and I'm sure Jeff talked about them, um, or with creation as well as the fall. They've come up a few times. But origin stories are fascinating. And if you look up, if you read origin stories, many of them have parallels to the biblical account. Um, and at the same time, there's lots of differences. So I want to briefly talk about some of these, as I think it's helpful for us to understand the context looking around our er, origin story. So looking specifically at Greek, Greek mythology, 
Ancient Greeks had a very, very low opinion of women, even uh, putting forth this idea that if they could live and recreate or um, have children without the help of women, that would just be the way to do it. However, they found no way for that to be possible. So alas, they allowed women to stick around um, so that they could keep creating men. Wonderful ideas here. And while if you look, there may be some hopeful desires um, by some ancient, <laughs> you look up who these people are because these are very well-known people. Um, there is some hopeful desires, hopeful desires for women to be educated. If you look deeper, it's clearly that this education was in um, areas that were not necessarily like anything special, as well as um, this desired education was wanted for the benefit of men, as there was much talk about women being educated naked and educated in ways that essentially made them available to men. So looking at some specifics, so this is just like Greek culture in general, but looking at some specifics within Greek mythology, the Iliad, which was written about 800 BC, depicts women as the cause of all conflict and suffering, yet they were merely possessions to be won, pawns in men's power plays. So this ancient document describes women as the cause of all conflict and suffering. Zeus, who you've probably all heard about, at the very least from the Disney movie Hercules, Zeus was a god of ancient Greek mythology, and he beat his wife and mistreated her and cheated on her, and this was their god. Um, and maybe this doesn't all seem like a big deal, um, but this kind of stuff sinks in, and it seeps through our culture. I love looking at my, my five-year-old. I learned so much talking with her. She loves watching Bible Project videos. And Bible Project started as two men discussing the Bible and um, really just online commentary, I think, is how they describe themselves. We love the Bible Project. We talk about them all the time. They have recently started having women narrate their videos. And my five-year-old noticed. As soon as she heard a female's voice, she's like, oh, there, there's a girl doing it. Because for her, she had never heard a female talk about the Bible on any online resource. So for her, it was this realization that, oh my goodness, like girls can talk about the Bible too. Girls can do this. And it was that hit home moment that representation matters. So going back to Greek mythology and Zeus, who was, um, yeah, mistreated his wife. As we keep going, uh, Hesiod, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but Hesiod was the author of the Theogony, which was essentially the origin story for the Greeks. So I'm going to read um, a quote here. This is from the book, Why Not Women? Most of my content today comes from the book, Why Not Women? And Women, God's Women Then and Now, both great resources. According to Hesiod, a time existed on earth when men lived blissfully without any woman. This paradise was lost when Prometheus stole fire from the Olympian gods and shared it with other men. In a vindictive rage, Zeus conceived the most horrifying punishment possible. Woman was created as men's eternal curse. This woman was Pandora, right? I know that it's appalling, right? This are our Greek philosophers, you guys. This is what they believed. This woman was Pandora. And as you keep going, Greek mythology continues with this idea that women were so separate um, from men that they were even made from a different substance. 
Um, they listed 10 substances that women were made from, nine of them were being bad. So you basically, um, not only were women fully apart from men, but you had a one-in-shot chance of having a good wife. So before all of this, before um, all of these times, you go back even further, you have the Egyptian and Mesopotamian stories. So I want to look at a Mesopotamian story quickly. Um, this story was, is believed to go back to 1500 B.C., in a saga known as the Enuma Elish. Um, and the story begins, this is from an online resource with historyworld.net. You can also look it up um, just by searching Mesopotamian or origin stories. The story begins with two watery, uh, watery beings, one male and one female, Apesu, sweet water, and Taimat, salt water. From their union, there came forth a variety of sea monsters and gods. In the ensuing chaos, Timiat, the female creator, tries to take control. Her descendants unite against her, choosing one of their number, Marduk, the god of Babylon, to lead them. Armed with a hurricane and riding a tempest drawn by four fiery steeds, Marduk meets Timat and her evil accomplice, Kangu, in battle. He kills them both. He splits the monstrous corpse of Timat, which again is the female creator in this, into two parts. From half of her, he creates the heavens. From, half, from the other half, the earth. In heaven, he constructs a dwelling place for his colleagues, the gods. Realizing that they will need a race of servants, he uses the blood of Kingu to create the first man. This is followed by other necessary tasks, such as creating rivers, plants, and animals. Great origin story, right? So not only do we have this female god as the one who causes all the problems, but then men are created basically as servants for the gods. So there are many different origin stories um, from different cultures, but there's a common theme where women are generally portrayed as bad or the monsters or the people who mess things up or cause problems or they were created as a punishment. So enter the biblical accounts. This is another quote from Why Not Women. Whereas Zeus created Pandora as an evil thing, an internal curse for men, the God of the Bible used his creative talent to form Eve as a beautiful gift to man. He set the couple in the garden as friends and lovers. Instead of the brutal battles of gods and goddesses in Greek and Roman myths, we see mutuality, partnership, and love. And I think this, when we realize all the other origin stories that exist out there, the creation story of the Bible becomes so much more beautiful. So we are going to read quickly just an excerpt from Genesis 1 and then one from Genesis 2. So I will read starting in Genesis 1 verse 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures, creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. What a difference between this and all the other stories we're reading. 
So we're going to jump ahead to Genesis 2, starting the second half of verse 20 through 25. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. I love these last two verses. Again, another conversation for another day, but if ever you want to talk about uh, God's design for marriage and this intimacy, let's dig into that, looking at Genesis 24 and 25. But what do we see here? In stark contrast to the other origin stories we've seen, we see that Adam and Eve, men and women, have a shared origin. Women coming from man, they come from the same substance. Nobody can look and say, well, Adam came from good dirt and Eve came from bad dirt. No, they came from the exact same origin. They have a shared origin and they have a shared destiny to together rule over the earth and take care of it. And if you continue in Genesis 3, you see that they have a shared tragedy. They have a shared fall, which leads into a shared hope. But I want to go back to Genesis 2 quickly because this term we see, suitable helper. In the Hebrew, it is Azer Neged. And we translate it suitable helper, but it would have been switched a helper suitable. There's no helper suitable. We're going to break this down a little bit because I think suitable helper is often a term used to um, prove that like women were made to compliment men or to like, come alongside and like support them. But you look at this word ezer, this would be the term for helper in the original Hebrew. This term helper is the same word used in the Old Testament for God and the Holy Spirit as helper. It is the exact same word. If you look up ezer, it is used over and over and over again to describe God as our helper. So I want to, can somebody read Psalm 121 verse, I think it's one, it might be one and two. Yes. You can stop there. That help is the same word, it is Ezer. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? The maker of heaven and earth. That is the same word, Ezer, Ezer, that is used to describe woman in Genesis 2. So by no stretch of the imagination does this word mean that woman is less than. It's not helper as like an assistant who helps. It's helper, like somebody that you cannot go without, somebody that you are dependent on. So then as we look at this second word, nigged, which while we translate it as suitable, it's better translated as equal. An equal helper, a suitable helper. So it's not a helper that's, e- that's suitable. It's a helper that's suitable. Like this, this terminology was intentionally used to bring men, men and women together. 
And this so drastically changes how we view the story. Adam and Eve were created together to live life and work the garden together. A couple other quick notes I want to look at from this story. If you look at chapter 3, so chapter 3 is when the fall happens. We discussed it, Jeff discussed it several weeks ago. Um, And if you read through that chapter, we're not going to take the time right now, but you can read through it on your own. As we've discussed, despite the blame being passed where the serpent blames the woman, or the woman blames, the man blames the woman, the woman blames the serpent. Um, What we see is that Adam and Eve both messed up together and ate the fruit. And when God gives his response, he curses the serpent and he curses the ground. And then he lays out the consequences of their sin. And too often in verse 16, which says to the woman, your desire, desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Too often we read this and say, see, he will rule over her. But out of context, we're taking out of context, which gives us a problem because God is not telling us what should happen. God is telling us the consequences of their sin, of their fall. He is laying out the reality because he very intentionally uses the word curse for the serpent and curse for the ground, but then tells the man and woman what will happen. We see the other thing God says is increased pain in childbirth as well as men will work hard and toil long to reap from the ground. Both of those things we have seen lessen over time. As time passes, as cultures continue to develop, those have lessened where pain in childbirth, childbirth is much nicer now than it would have been for Eve trying to give birth with only Adam there. We have seen medicine and advancements that have lessened that. The same with men toiling in the ground. It is not happening in the same way. You are not going out and wrestling with the ground to try grow your food. Things have developed and it is the same here. We see improvement over time and development of culture. And as we become more like Jesus and as we step closer to his intent, we want to step back to what we saw in Genesis 1 and 2. God's original intent was for this equal partnership. And what we have seen, which I think all of us would see, which is hierarchy, patriarchy, abuse, assault, all this stuff was not God's intent. It is the reality of sin entering our world. The other, the last note I want to look at here in verse 15, God says to the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. I will crush your head and you will strike his heel. I love this because it's foreshadowing Jesus in such a beautiful way. Um, But we, uh, another story for another time. Well, there's so many stories we could, so many different directions we could go here. Um, But looking at this first part, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Your offspring and hers, the more literal translation is between your seed and hers, or between your seed and her seed. So to use, for us this makes no difference. Seed, offspring, offspring's probably a little clearer for us. But this is where it gets really awesome, and again I'm quoting from um, Why Not Women. But the authors say, look how he describes Eve's offspring. The Hebrew for offspring is literally seed. What an extraordinary statement in light of Greek medical thought as well as that of other ancients. They thought that men sowed his seed into women's soil. 
scientists didn't discover that women had anything but a passive role in the creation of life until the 1800s. Then science finally caught up with the accuracy of God's word. As Starr points out, her seed was something uninspired men would never have allowed. I love this. So, okay, let's just spell this out in case that was hard to follow. Before the 1800s, the 1800s, which really isn't that long ago, before the 1800s, we thought, which makes sense that we think this, we thought that men put their seed into women's soil and that women just served a passive role in creating life. And based on, as you can see, all the Greek views of women that we have seen, what they are saying here is that no uninspired man would have ever allowed this text to be written as her seed. Because according to them, she didn't have a seed. It was his seed. And so what a beautiful thing that the Bible inspired, the authors inspired, use this term, her seed. Uh, we're going to continue in the Old Testament, but I wanted to stop for a second. We've already covered a ton and see if there are any questions or anything that we, any thoughts. Okay, let's continue in the Old Testament. Because as you keep reading through the Old Testament, you can't help but notice there's lots of interesting stories. And there are lots of stories in the Old Testament where women are treated horribly. There are stories where they are assaulted, where they are abused, where they are overlooked. Um, and in fact, if we really look, there are many stories in the Old Testament that are just horrible in general, forget the way that women are treated. And I think this leads us to the question, why? And what we need to remember is that the Bible, which is God's word to us, is telling us God's story, the story of his people fallen, un unable to fulfill their covenant with God than the coming of the Messiah, the new covenant, and all that. But what we see is the Bible showing us the true mess of human life. We need to remember with that that not everything that happens is the Bible in the Bible is condoned. This idea that not everything that's in the Bible is biblical. And I think we can probably agree with that. Even you look at Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills Abel. That's bad. And I think we can all agree with that. And just because it happened in the Bible doesn't mean, oh, God's okay if I kill my brother if I'm jealous of the favor he receives. No, all of us would agree that is bad. That is a bad interpretation of the passage. So not everything that happens in the Bible is condoned by the Bible. The Bible is telling a very real story. The Old Testament specifically is telling a very real story of Abraham's descendants trying and failing to keep the covenant between them and God. You can go back a few podcasts and listen to the podcast on the Abrahamic covenant if you would like. And what we see is the reality that the Bible tells us the honesty of their mess, the honesty of reality as it unfolds. And that includes women who are often mistreated. Um, so we also, it helps us, we need to remember that we see the Bible outside of surrounding culture. We see the Bible as a singular book outside of its culture. We've talked about this already 
in the, um, we've talked about this already with creation, but I want to look at some of the Old Testament laws because I think these catch us up. Because you could read any Old Testament law and either get really confused because it says no tattoos and then it says like don't, don't eat a goat in its mother's milk and you're like, okay, like what do I do with that? Again, Jeff talked about the law a couple of weeks ago, so go back and listen to that podcast. But we also see other passages relating to women that kind of make us cringe and like get really mad. And so I want to look at those. Um, So in Deuteronomy chapter 24, we see this discussion of divorce. And it's interesting because it goes on a little bit if she remarries and then what happens. But according to this passage, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, he can then send her from his house. And we read that and we say, that is awful. That is awful. That if a man finds something displeasing in his wife, he can just write her a certificate of divorce and like send her away. Like that is horrendous. And no wonder, no wonder people read this and think that the Bible is misogynistic or think that the Bible doesn't support women. However, we need to look at the surrounding context. Because we know that in this time period, women who were divorced had no hope of a future. Because women couldn't work, they couldn't support themselves, so they were fully fully dependent on getting married and having sons so that they would always have somebody to provide for them. And what we also know is that it was almost impossible for a divorced woman or an abandoned woman to remarry. And this is the culture in which this was written. So here we have a certificate of divorce which gives her hope. Hope that she can remarry. Hope that she can be provided for. Hope that she is not forever labeled and shamed for the act of her husband abandoning her. Is any of this good? No. This is all awful. All of it. But what we see is God working within the limitations of a patriarchal society to help bring them to a deeper understanding of his will. And we see him working within their understanding to provide for women and empower them in a world that said they were nothing. So again, we see God recognizing that it's a patriarchal society where women are nothing and he realizes the best way to help women is to do it within the limits of their understanding. Because if God says, don't leave women, don't throw them out, women are still going to get thrown out. We know, we have a history that shows us that so many of the laws in the Old Testament were never followed. For example, the year of Jubilee. If God had said, don't throw out your women if you don't like them, there's a high possibility, we don't know for sure, there's a high possibility that would not have been followed. But here with a certificate of divorce, she's given hope. What we also see, so another concept we see here is the Old Testament is laying a foundation for truth that Jesus is going to bring. So we see Jesus redeem this law by saying, I believe this is Matthew chapter 5, however I didn't write down the reference. Verse 30, it has been said, Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. 
But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus takes this Old Testament principle, which was written to protect women from that culture at that time, flips it on its head and says, you, you are making her a victim of this if you divorce her, except for certain guidelines. So we have a culture that completely abandons divorced women. So the Old Testament comes in and gives her hope through a certificate of divorce. And then Jesus comes on the scene and gives them value. And that's what we see so often within context. These things that don't make sense to, sense to us. Like the Old Testament is laying a foundation for God's intent. Going back to this idea of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. I want to look at another example of this. Numbers chapter 30 verses 15 through or 10 through 15. And I'm going to read this. If a woman living with her husband makes a vow or obligates herself by a pledge under oath and her husband hears about it but says nothing to her and does not forbid her, then all her vows or the pledges by which she obligates herself will stand. But if her husband nullifies them when he hears about them, then none of the vows or pledges that come from her lips will stand. Her husband has nullified them and the Lord will release her. Her husband may confirm or nullify any vow she makes or any sworn pledge to deny herself. But if her husband says nothing to her about it from day to day, then he confirms all her vows or the pledges binding on her. He confirms them by saying nothing to her when he hears about them. If, however, he nullifies them sometime after he hears about them, then he must bear the consequence of her wrongdoing. Again, this is another passage that's easy for us to read. And are you kidding me? He gets to decide if she can keep her vows. Like, I can think for myself, thank you. I can decide what vows I'm keeping and not keeping. But in reality, what we see here is that this is a culture where if she makes a vow before the Lord or she says she's going to fast or she's going to deny herself this and her husband says, no, you're not doing that, she has no option. And the Lord is releasing her from any obligation. This verse in verse 12, her husband has nullified them and the Lord will release her. What he is saying is if you as a woman make a vow to me and your husband does not let you keep it, I hold you blameless. You have not broken that vow. It has been nullified. So again, this is a situation in our context. It sounds super screwed up. But within the context of that society, it is a beautiful way that God is protecting women and removing the guilt or the shame that they would feel for a broken vow that they couldn't control. And we see this many times over, and we've talked about this before, the importance of context. Um, We're going to keep going, but any questions before we do? Awesome. So I, as we keep going, um, yeah, we're, we're kind of wrapping up, but a, well, a couple things, maybe wrapping up is not quite the term I would use. I guess we'll see how much longer I go for, but I, another thing I want to point out because we talk about prophets all the time, um, but we tend to skip over when the old Testament refers to a female as a prophet, but there are prophets listed in the Old Testament, there are female prophets or prophetesses listed in the Old, te- in, in the Old Testament. P- 
People like Miriam, who is Moses' sister, is listed as a prophet. Deborah, who was not only a prophet, but she was the leader, the leader of the whole tribe of Israel, who told, I think his name was Barak, if I remember correctly. Thank you. Barak told Barak, you're going to go out and you're going to deliver the Israelites. And he said, come with me. I'm afraid. And she said, I'll come with you. But because of because you will not go on your own, the king will be delivered into the hands of a woman. This is a great story. You assume that it's going to be Deborah. But instead, this king, this foreign king comes, hides in this lady's tent, falls asleep. She says, I'll keep you safe. And the Israelites win, exactly, the Israelites win when he is sleeping and this lady drives a tent peg through his temple. Deborah, I mean, it wasn't Deborah who drove the tent peg, but Deborah. Then we also see Huldah. Huldah appears when Josiah, King Josiah, he's cleaning, cleaning out the temple and realizes that they have not been following the law. They bring it to her and she is the prophet who guides them and hears from the Lord. And then we have Isaiah's, Isaiah's wife, who is also listed in, as a prophet in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 3. We have these women who are clearly listed as prophets in the Old Testament. And while this isn't included, um, uh, this, while this does not include the prophets in the New Testament, I will, if you remember, in my sermon a couple weeks ago looking at Acts 21, there's just this passing comment that Philip's four daughters were all prophets. <laughs> we see the Bible giving women this title all throughout the Bible. And again, this does not include um, the other women that we see come up in the New Testament. But then we see in Joel chapter 2, verse 28, and afterwards, I will pour my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And in case we forget it, Peter quotes it in Acts chapter 2 to explain what happens on the day of Pentecost. I will pour out my spirit on all people and your sons and daughters will prophesy. But I want to take a moment to zoom in on one woman that we see in the Old Testament Hagar, in Genesis chapter 16. So in Genesis chapter, well, in Genesis in the surrounding chapters, hold on, give me a second to pull this up myself. In Genesis, we have Abraham. You're probably familiar with him at this point. And his wife, Sarah, this time it's Sarai, and his name at this point is Abram. They are promised a son. They are promised that their descendants will outnumber the stars. Um, and this has not yet happened, and so they kind of start to panic, and this is what we see in chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, took, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. 
When she knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I am running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord said, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall call, you shall name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well is called Ber Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Barad. So Hagar bore Abram a son and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had bore. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So a lot we have here in this story. But what we see is essentially Hagar, who is likely assaulted, likely did not consent to being used in this method, and is then mistreated when she is pregnant and she runs away. Not only is she mistreated, but she's mistreated by God's own people. And yet... God shows up and gives her a promise and he cares for her. And this promise, I don't know if you, this stands out to you. In verse 10, the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. This is so similar to the promise given to Abraham. This is so similar. Your descendants will outnumber the stars. And yet here, this promise is given to a runaway slave who was mistreated by her people. And yet God gives her this beautiful promise. And I don't know if you notice, but without condition. When he makes this covenant with Abraham, there's a lot of conditions. It's a covenant, but here he gives her a promise without condition. And then we see, then we see as he continues, she responds in verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why, well, it's irrelevant what the well is called at this point. But God cares for her and she gives him the name Elroy, the God who sees. She is one of the few people to name God. Not only that, she is the first. She is the first person in the Bible that we see give God a name. She is an abused, mistreated woman, and yet she gives God the name, the God who sees. The God who sees me. An abused, mistreated, forgotten, runaway woman. The God who sees her, who sees women in general, those who are mistreated and alone. 
And this is such a beautiful revelation of how God sees women. I want to end with a brief glimpse into the New Testament. The whole Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. So the very first thing, anyone know the very first thing we read in the New Testament in chapter 1 of Matthew? You probably all skip it when you get to it. The genealogy. We see the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. It's the very first page of the New Testament. And genealogies were very important in this day. They were very significant. They showed you who you were, who your family was, where you came from. They were also very male-dominated. Not only male-dominated, they, like, were men. Like, genealogies were just name after name of men after men after men. Or man after man after man. And yet, do we, what do we find in the genealogy of Jesus? We find four women listed by name. Well, three by name. We see four women listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife. The first, Tamar, was mistreated but became the mother of a tribe of Israel. Rahab was a prostitute who trusted God and saved his people. Ruth was a widow who stayed loyal to her mother-in-law with no hope of a future. And Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, who was involved in a very messy situation but became the mother of King Solomon. And this is so significant and would have stood out to the Jewish readers that Matthew included four women in the genealogy of Jesus. Which we can't help reading through this, but think back to what we just talked about in chapter 16, that God is Elroy, the God who sees. The God who sees these four women in this genealogy who would have been overlooked based on not only the fact that they were women, but by the stories surrounding them. The God who sees the women of the Old Testament, who sees Hagar, and sees women and their value, and that they were made in the image of God, is equal partners with man. So that's what I have. Any questions or thoughts or, yeah, anything? But I would, so the, the two books that I talk about a lot, or I reference a lot, um, Why Not Women and God's Women Then and Now, both of which I would highly recommend. Um, and they both look into some of the difficult New Testament passages that we kind of like don't know what to do with. And they do a really good job um, looking at those. us live for the XA Learning Hour, come to the UWM Student Union, room W145 at 1.30 on Thursdays. Thanks for listening.